0: So, I want to read uh, Psalm 23 and, uh, and have us uh, live in it uh, for a little bit of time, uh, pursuant to our uh, attending the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't know uh, how many of you uh, had this experience. I date myself severely when I tell you uh, that in my elementary school, Coral Reef Elementary School in Miami, Florida, uh, we memorized both the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. And that was part of our regular uh, school function. We said the Pledge of Allegiance, we said the Lord's Prayer, and we recited the 23rd Psalm. Uh, I knew it already uh, from my parents and from my Sunday school classes. And uh, uh, a few years ago, my dad had uh, had died several years before, and my mom. Uh, and I was sitting up one night, and, and she uh, said that she was having trouble sleeping, and I asked her why. And she said, well, you know, my conscience is so troubled. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, what would you have a troubled conscience about? And she related, you know, kind of the weirdness of uh, my dad's death. Uh, he died in a hospital when she, and, and on her way to visit him at one point, she fell and broke her hip. So on the day that he died, she was actually in another hospital uh, having had a hip replaced. And she felt terrible about this and felt like it was her fault. And, uh, and of course, I, you know, said it wasn't your fault. But uh, more than that, I said, Mom, my, I remember vividly you teaching me the 23rd Psalm uh, when I was a kid. And I'm going to teach it back to you. And, of course, she had it memorized. Uh, but it was balm to her soul uh, to remember the providence of God and to remember God's goodness to her uh, every step of her life. And that's really what this psalm is about. I don't know if you've studied the providence of God. Uh, there was a young man who was part of our church in Cambridge, had gone to Kansas City and was part of a church there. And he said that uh, he, there was a men's group there that was studying this old Puritan kind of classic work on the providence of God. And I, I tipped my hat to him. Uh, But the providence of God is one of the richest, um, most complex, difficult, uh, hard to comprehend doctrines that we have. Uh, John Piper, I think, recently wrote a book on the providence of God. I heard him interviewed about it. And it's so big, he doesn't imagine that anyone will actually read the book. But he just wanted to get all his thoughts down for posterity. Uh, But our shorter catechism... has the question, what are God's works of providence? Those of you that have it memorized know the answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is a little bit more flowery as it usually is. Uh, questions, Question and answer 27, under the rubric of... Uh, Um, expositing the Apostles' Creed, and what does it mean when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Uh, they pose this question, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with His hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Uh, So, this psalm is personalizing that. Uh, It's it's bringing it home where the Lord is my shepherd, not simply that the Lord is uh, the shepherd, and not even that the Lord is our shepherd, uh, but taking it all the way into the bone of the Lord is my shepherd. So, Uh, Let me read this psalm. I know that most of you have it memorized. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Six uh, short verses, uh, but monumental uh, in in the larger scope of, of what uh, the Psalter has in it and what the entire Scripture uh, teaches us. I, w- I want to divide it into three, and I'm going to divide it into the three places where uh, the psalmist, King David, says, I will. Uh, th- that's why the title of the sermon is, I will. Uh, <clears throat> the first thing that he says that he will do is actually something that he will not do. He will not want. Uh, so, in the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, I shall not want. And The personal pronoun is critical. You know that Martin Luther said that Christianity was essentially a religion of personal pronouns. It's one thing to say that it's out there and it's true. It's another thing to say that it's mine. Uh, So the, the, the writer of the Song of Solomon says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. We sing that. His banner over me is love. And he doesn't say here that the Lord is my king, the Lord is my deliverer, the Lord is my rock, the Lord is my shield. He says that elsewhere. Uh, but here the focus is the Lord is my shepherd. And as my shepherd, he makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside uh, still waters. The shepherd surely cares for his sheep, puts their needs first, just as a father with his children. So the shepherd is concerned with the, uh, the needs of the sheep, with their proper care, and as such, he makes them lie down in green pastures and leads them beside still waters. Um, Charles Spurgeon said that the the green pastures are the Scriptures and the still waters are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, we ought to be clear about this sense of the absence of want. I think you might be familiar with Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote kind of a classic Puritan work uh, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And, in the first chapter of that, he says arrestingly that uh, that the Christian is the most contented person in the world, and at the same time, the Christian is the most discontented person in the world uh, contented the most content person in the world, because of what the psalm is saying here <clears throat> the the old folksy version. Uh, that was around in the in the '70s, uh, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need, uh, but discontent because we 've gotten a taste of the next life we 've gotten a taste of the life to come, and we know how far short this life falls. so we are both uh, fully content and yet almost ravenously discontent <clears throat> as soon as you can say personally. The Lord is my shepherd. You can say, I have everything that I need. And so it is true that in this life we know yearning. We know discontent. And we have stretches of <clears throat> serious discontent as we wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, with the life that is so seriously compromised by our forebears. Uh, but we have everything that we need for the struggle. That in that discontent, we have everything that we need to remedy the discontent, to address the discontent, and even to live in it if we have to. What's really in view here, with the shepherd making us and me lie down in green pastures and leading me beside still waters, is our salvation and uh, and to be more specific, theologically, it's about our sanctification, uh, which is the, the 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 longest stretch of our salvation as far as we experience, uh, as far as we experience it. Uh, we are justified in a moment when we put our faith in Christ, uh, but we are sanctified throughout the rest of our lives. And both of those are the work of God's Spirit uh, that is happening through the vehicle of faith. Uh, Both of those are God, in fact, saving us corporately and individually. And so the way that that's described here is that he restores my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, the soul's restoration is a full idea. The shepherd cares for me so well, so adequately, so perfectly that He is invested in the restoration of my soul. And that means both uh, repentance and, retur- and returning. It has to do with the restoration comes on the heels of repentance. That's when we're restored. We're restored when we turn from the nonsense that we're pursuing and turn towards uh, the Lord. That's what repentance is. We turn around to face Him. We turn away from the idols that we… S- serve, that we pursue, that, well, we love, in a sense, and we turn toward him who is the lover of our soul. But then the soul's restoration is also uh, our revival, uh, the making us wise, as uh, the the psalmist also writes in Psalm uh, 119, or Psalm 19, Uh, he revives us, he makes us wise, He restores our soul, and he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When I was uh, a new Christian, not quite new, but uh, in the 70s and 80s, a big topic in the church was guidance. And so there were several books that were uh, printed at that time, published, called, uh, having to do with finding God's will. And we were big into this. Part of it was the charismatic revival and folks claiming that they had gotten a word from the Lord to go here, go there, marry this person or that person. And so it was a hot question that was up in the air. Packer wrote about it. A number of other folks wrote about it. And so we were, and I remember being at seminary and, and remember Jay Adams in his own uh, fashion, you know, which was inimitable. Uh, getting up and saying, if you want the Lord to lead you, I can tell you exactly where he's going to lead you. Every one of you, he is going to lead you into the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's where God is leading you. So guidance, on the one hand, if you're trying to figure out where you ought to be, what you ought to do, and with whom you ought to do it, uh, can be tricky. But at root, it's not tricky. Because God is, in fact, committed as your good shepherd to guiding you into his ways so that we who are instinctively rebellious can learn throughout our lives to say that God's ways are good ways, that God is good and the ways in which he leads me are good uh, for my soul, good for my salvation, uh, good for those around me. God's ways are always good ways. So the shepherd, having provided rest and delight, leads us towards reverence and obedience. I love those four things holding together. Uh, John Owen, in his monumental work, Communion with the Triune God, uh, says that the essence of communion with God the Father is rest, delight, reverence, and obedience. That's kind of the shape of these verses in Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And he said it's in that order that relating to God the Father, having communion with God the Father is first a matter of rest, that secondly it's a matter of delight, that thirdly it's a matter of reverence, and that lastly it's a matter of obedience. And we have a hard time keeping that order in place. There is something in our flesh, there is something instinctive in the flesh that wants to invert that. And so the Christian church has been plagued throughout the centuries with wanting to make communion with, the, with the God the Father first a matter of obedience. And we feel like if we're obedient enough and muster enough reverence, that eventually we will get to delight and rest. Owen says just the opposite. Old, crusty, hard-nosed, puritanical John Owen says the first thing. When you commune with God your Father, is you learn to rest, and then you learn to delight. And out of that grows by the Spirit, reverence and obedience. It really is a spiritual tragedy to reverse the order. So from that foundation comes the second "I will." Uh, David says that as a result of the shepherd's good care for him, he will fear no evil. And that's in a context. One of the paths of righteousness into which God leads you and me is the valley of the shadow of death. Or the footnote says the darkest valley. Uh, God is going to lead at times into dark valleys. And depending on the variety of your experience, uh, for each one of us there will be a point at, at some point when it will be the darkest valley. And that's what the Puritan called the Valley of Vision. You probably know that book of prayers, published several years ago. Uh, it's become very popular. And it's called, the book is actually titled The Valley of Vision. Uh, but the prayer in the middle of that is a reflection on the valley of the shadow of death, the darkest valley. Uh, this is the prayer. <clears throat> it's probably familiar to you. Lord, high and holy. Meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. It's really a powerful prayer. It becomes a centerpiece of that collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, It is interesting that the pronoun shifts from he to you. Uh, The Lord, he is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. But here I will fear no evil for you are with me. So the shepherd has become the psalmist's traveling companion. And this communion with God, the relationship with God, grows as the path becomes dark. The darker the path, the closer the Lord. We had a kind of a joke in seminary. Uh, Our Hebrew professor would get up and the first words out of his mouth after praying for us would either be, let's turn to the book of Ruth, or it would be, please get out a piece of paper. And if he said, please get out a piece of paper, you knew that he was going to quiz you on your homework assignment from the night before. And so one day he got up and he, uh, you know, there was this great pause, this pregnant pause, we're all (laughs) leaning forward. And he says, let's turn to the book of Ruth. And this one guy in my class threw his hands up in the air and praised the Lord and said, the Lord has heard the cry of the afflicted. And and it just became a watchword in our class from that point on. That guy went on to become a Semitics professor himself. Uh, But it became part of the way that I think about life, you know, kind of one of those phrases that sticks with you. And I remember uh, doing a hospital visitation with a couple uh, whose son had had one severe malady after another. Uh, And he he was going to be permanently disabled uh, in a lot of different ways, And I remember visiting them in the hospital, and it had been repeated visits, many different doctors. And as we sat down, you know, and looked at each other, I said, well, tell me, is it the case that the Lord has heard the cry of the afflicted? And I'll never forget the woman, you know, the emphasis in her voice when she said, oh, yes, that is true. The Lord has met us in our affliction." The rod and the staff are God's protection of us, uh, but they are also uh, the beauty and the support and the discipline uh, with which God uh, keeps his sheep close to himself. Uh, That leads to the third, I will, uh, where David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, Now the Lord is not the shepherd, he's not the travel companion, but he's become the host. Uh, He is a host that is welcoming uh, his sheep, if you can put it that way, uh, into his home. And more than deliverance from evil, it's triumph and vindication. You know, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Think about that. It's not just that the Lord has rescued you, but he has displayed you, In the presence of your enemies, in the presence, you know, that your vanquished enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all there to suffer through your being seated uh, at the table of the Lord. Every detail, the table, the oil, the brimming cup, uh, carries this flavor, not just of deliverance from evil, but vindication in the presence of one's enemies, and better than a feast, There's this bond of everlasting friendship that is established between the Lord uh, and the psalmist. Uh, We, again, we don't quite appreciate, we appreciate a little bit, but we don't appreciate just how important and how sacred, in a sense, it was uh, to have a meal at someone's table. To be invited to have a meal at someone's table Uh, is to enter a relationship of loyalty and commitment. It's to enter a bond. And that's what the Lord is doing by inviting David uh, to this meal. It looks a lot like that mysterious meal in Exodus 24. That's the hardest, one of the harder passages in the Bible to understand. You know, how the Lord had invited these 24 elders up to the mountain to have a meal with him. Uh, It it goes against kind of many of the other assumptions and even kind of direct assertions in the book of Exodus, but there they are, uh, having a meal with the Lord. And and especially the word mercy, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You've got a little footnote in the ESV that points out that the word is steadfast love. Uh, The word has a covenantal flavor to it. Uh, God is in covenant with the psalmist as he lays a table uh, before him in the presence of his enemies. So David also writes, you know, this I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is such a rich idea and theme. It's something that you need to think about, pray about. It's something you need to sing about. But David writes in Psalm 27, just a couple of psalms later, One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I think I've told told the story in a lot of places. I need to keep telling it. It's one of the vivid memories of my life. But we had a young woman in our church in North Carolina. Her dad was an elder in the church. And she was energetic and maybe a little bit foolish. I don't know. Not foolish. She was brave. And so she decided that she would, when she graduated college, go to work for Food for the Hungry in Cambodia. And so she went into Cambodia. Of course, the Khmer Rouge had been put aside, and she was on a clean water project. Uh, They had well-digging equipment, and she was involved in a team. She was heading up the team that would train local Cambodians to utilize this equipment to dig wells. Uh, Well, a former general of the Khmer Rouge, a guy who had a reputation of being the most murderous of all, kidnapped these guys with their equipment, took them into his encampment. And uh, this young woman, this is a little bit of the folly, she marched right into his camp and demanded their release. And he said, I'd be glad to let them go, but you're staying. And we got the word that a ransom was out, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars. The executives with Food for the Hungry called the parents and said, you guys know, or if you've forgotten, you know, our agreement has always been that we don't pay ransoms uh in in foreign countries and so there we sat with daily prayer meetings uh in the living room of her parents house and uh and after i think six weeks she was released uh there wasn't a ransom paid and so it kind of ended happily uh and when we when she got back and we began to talk to her about her experience she said uh my meat and drink was psalm twenty seven. We used to sing a song to Psalm 27, the Lord is my light, the Lord is my shield. Praise the Lord and the love he reveals. In this verse, in the middle of it, just one thing I ask, O Lord, to dwell in your house the days of my life, watching your beauty, Lord, was her meat and drink, her communion with the Father uh, while being held captive in Cambodia. So this is what David looks forward to. It's the anchor of his hope. That at the end of days, when earth's paths, valleys, and threats are over, there is the house of the Lord. I've been recommending to people recently uh, a new album. I don't know what you call these things anymore. It's not a record album. It's not a CD, but it sure looks like it on the internet. Uh, But a young woman who attended our church in Cambridge, Carolyn Cobb, spells her name like Caroline, uh, has just released a a CD, an album of Psalms. And, uh, and her Psalm 84, which also carries this theme, is really powerful. And the chorus just keeps turning over and over. She says, I want to be in your presence. I want to be near your heart. I want to know you're close even when I'm feeling far. I don't want what this world would offer. I want the living God. Because there's no place better than where you are. Uh, that's a song that you can sing. That's a song that will resonate. And that, that's a song that will put you right. You know Calvin, in his own way, and I love his own way. <laughs> I I dearly love reading Calvin's exegesis of the scriptures. Uh, at the end of Psalm twenty-three, he says how incredibly stupid it is to look for happiness apart from that which is found in drawing near to God. Uh, I need that rebuke uh, because I am invested in that pretty routinely. Uh, well. Before we get to the table, we have to make the obvious uh, connections. Uh, At least they seem obvious on further reflection. Uh, Jesus self-consciously took on the identity of a shepherd. Uh, This was clearly in view uh, when he said uh, in John chapter 10, uh, I am the good shepherd. Uh, He clearly had in mind Psalm 23 and the other Uh, passages in the Old Testament that reflect this. Uh, John Stott in his little brief commentary says that Jesus dares to take the metaphor to himself. But you remember his words, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, uh, one shepherd. Uh, The care of the shepherd and the intimacy of the companion uh, through the darkest valley are both demonstrated in Jesus' person and his promises. Uh, Not only that, uh, but Jesus is called the rising sun that penetrates the dark ravine uh, in Zechariah's prophecy over his son John. You remember this in the first chapter of Luke? Uh, John is going to be dedicated. Zechariah writes on a tablet. His name is John, because the relatives are confused. and, uh, and he recites this, this prayer, uh, this praise, uh, to the Lord. Uh, it is uh, sung as something called the Benedictus. And at the end of that, Zechariah says, "A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High." For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Jesus is not only the good shepherd but he's also the light that shines in the darkest place. And of course, uh, Jesus is the one who spreads the ultimate covenant table, uh, the table of the new and everlasting covenant, uh, offering his body in the bread and his blood in the wine. So this psalm is really saturated with Jesus as we knew it would be. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, Just as the psalmist says that he only desires one thing uh, to dwell in your house, to dwell in your presence. Uh, We, as we read this psalm, have the deepest parts of us stirred. We want so much to know this confidence, uh, to know the contentment that is founded upon that, and to live our lives in such a way that though we're not pure, And we're never going to be without struggle, that in the middle of our struggles, uh, we would have this this anchor of uh, our good shepherd, Jesus. Uh, So, Father, especially as we come to this table that Jesus prepared for us, a table in the presence of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, would you give your spirit so that we would apprehend this uh, by faith and that it would so nourish us?